This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by Audible.com. If you would like to support this podcast and start a 30-day trial membership, visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Season 11, Episode 26. This is Writing Excuses Q&A on Mystery. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're... we're <laughs> <laughs> Man, we really aren't Probably that smart today. <laughs> Questions are delicious. Oh. So the okay. mystery is, what did Howard say? <laughs> I'm going to throw a question at you guys. <laughs> How do you balance between two mysteries in the same story? Should you even try? Jesse asks this. I think it's a great question. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially if they're small mysteries. Like we said in uh, the the first episode about mysteries— a Harry Potter book will have 10, 12 mysteries in it all by itself, even the first one, which was short. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can add lots of mysteries in there. I suspect by the question that the the person is thinking of much larger mysteries, like mm-hmm. mystery as main genre and a different mystery as another main genre. And that could get tricky, but you could still pull it Oh, out. yeah, the that simplest. sounds like an awesome book to me. Yeah. Tough. But awesome. The simplest format for this is uh, you can watch it during the second and third seasons of the original CSI, which is the A plot, B plot, where the glue for the story is the relationship that these characters are having with each other. Mm -hmm. um, And there are two different mysteries being solved. Sometimes they relate. Sometimes they are completely different. You know, I'm struggling to find an example, but I do know I've read books or watched movies where there are two mysteries and the characters don't know it yet. They think they're solving the same thing. And then at some point they're like, oh, these are two different things. Or the reverse, two mysteries we're trying to solve. And you're like, oh, wait, these were the same murderer Mm -hmm. or the murderer did this in order to set up this other murderer, the two mysteries are the same. That latter case Mm -hmm. is much more common, especially in procedural shows like Howard's Mm -hmm. talking about. One of the things to do when you're doing that is to pay attention to the order in which you open and close those mystery questions uh, and also the proportion of time that you spend on them. So if you open your first mystery and you're a third of the way into the book before you open your second one, you need to make sure that you're allotting yourself enough time to close them both out without – leaving the reader feeling like you've spent a disproportionate amount of time on one or the other. Yeah. Often in a traditional three-act format, you open with a mystery in Act 1, and the solution to the mystery at the end of Act 1 is, oh, this is the real problem, and, you know, we've we've answered the question with another much larger question. Yeah. So this one kind of plays off of that, but I, I did want to bring it up because I think that I've got an interesting answer for it. What types of mysteries can fit as subplots? For example, when does a murder work as a subplot rather than as a main plot? And I think it works can work just fine. I think any mystery can be a subplot. You just have to determine the scope of it and the number of clues. Um, I love having like a murder mystery as a subplot when I tie it to one character. In the Wheel of Time books, when I was working on them, I was presented with you know, something like 25 main characters, and they all needed to have some involvement in these last three books. I said, well, there's an assassin trying to kill one of the main characters. Let's have her bodyguard 
investigate because a dead body because this assassin, someone ran across the assassin, got killed. And what it did is it allowed me to have him have a a minor plot where he's investigating the assassin, but it played into this whole larger issue of she's in danger and the evil forces are working against her and it could work to their relationship because he's like, I've got to protect you. And she's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but you know, you're trying too hard and it's, you're going to get yourself killed. And then I don't have any project detection uh, protection. And so this subplot of, find the murderer work beautifully as just a little thing to add in to heighten mm-hmm. the tension and the characters. The you other, know, go ahead, please. Oh, the other way to, to it can work is um, we talked at one point about the difference between an obstacle and a complication. Yes. And if your murder is, is your subplot is just an obstacle. It just stops things. It's, it's not very interesting. Um, and it can just feel like a, something that's tacked on, very transparently to try to raise yeah. tension. But if if the murder changes things for the characters, which it really should because someone's mm-hmm. dead, um, then it becomes a complication and that ratches everything in the story up. So you want to make sure that whoever is killed, that there is actually an effect from that person being dead. It's not just that there's a dead body. I was going to say, uh, it, it occurs to me while you were talking, the third season of The Wire... Mm. had two brilliantly nested mysteries. There's the cops who are trying to catch the drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, one of the drug dealers has killed another one and not told anyone. And so the drug dealers are trying to solve this mystery within their own ranks. Wow, and it yeah. adds a lot of tension to that story while they're being hunted by the cops. And uh, you know, eventually the cops figured out about the murder and started investigating that as well. It was just really... Byzantine, very complicated, but it worked beautifully. Everybody is the detective in their own murder mystery. (laughs) So Payton asks a question that I find very, very interesting. Um, It looks like they have had a story, I'm paraphrasing because it was, uh, um, where their betas say, oh yeah, we all figured out the mystery way early. And Payton asks, so how can I tweak it so that my readers won't have the same experience as my beta readers? Ask your beta readers what tipped them off mm-hmm. and then take that out. Mm. Sorry, I've done this multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, in uh, John Cleaver 5, I sent it to my beta readers and got to the big reveal moment and my friend texted me and said, wait, didn't we already know this like three chapters ago? And I thought, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and that's how I did it. You know, well, yeah. okay, what tipped you off? What gave this away? And she told me the exact conversation and I changed that conversation. I don't think you have to stress this one as much as you might be stressing it, Payton, because that's basically how you write every mystery. Is. Yeah. In first draft, it's either too obtuse, nobody gets it, and the answer is, huh? Rather than, oh. And you have to add in more, or you take it away. Um, another strategy I should mention is making another really good red herring, making the characters feel like they've figured it out, and the reader feel like they're smart and have figured it out, and then have that get pulled out from underneath them a few chapters before you reveal the real answer. One of the challenges with writing groups, you know, it depends on how you're running your group. Uh, Usually they are getting a couple of chapters at a time and they're reading the book across the space of a month or more, which is lots of time to figure out what might be happening in the next chapter. And if you've really engaged them and they spend a lot of time thinking about it, one or more of them is kind of likely to come across, oh, this would just be an awesome ending that answers the question. Yeah, the other thing is also one of the problems with beta readers is that sometimes they'll forget the clues if you wait, wait too yeah. long. Yeah, 
Um, Mary, this one's kind of more specifically targeted at you. Ooh. Nathan asks, and what in terms of mice quotient, oh. do all mystery plots have to be idea based? Yes. Okay. Great. Moving on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the <laughs> uh, basically because in the mice quotient, uh, idea encompasses questions, and mysteries are question driven. Yep, I think that that is right. Um, you can have a subplot that maybe not be, but yeah. even then. That's the idea. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlay, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Let's go ahead and stop for our book of the week. Um, The book of the week is I Am Princess X by Sherry Priest, narrated by me. Uh, this is, it's a YA coming of age, but it is also completely a mystery. Basically, what happens is um young girl, uh, in the, the first chapter, you find out that um, her best friend died in a horrific car accident, and they had had this cartoon character, Princess X, that they shared and did all of this art and stories about, and now she's a teenager, and she's moved to Seattle, and suddenly she is seeing Princess X cartoons, and there's no way anyone else would know about this character. Mm. So she has to figure out why. Uh, and then there's several actual embedded mysteries within it. It's fantastic. Um, and I'll also say that it was a mystery for me as an audiobook narrator because the print form of this has a comic book embedded in it. <laughs> so, oh, man. We had to figure out how to do that man, for radio. I need for to radio. read that. Sherry is one of the podcast's favorite people. Yeah. We just absolutely love her, and her books are great. Yeah. This one sounds great. This is fantastic. I loved this book. Uh, so you can pick up a copy at audiblepodcast.com. Start a 30-day trial membership. Um, and if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse, you support us. And uh, you can pick up I Am Princess X as your first book. Excellent. All right. So Ryan asks a question that's I'm going to break into two parts because I think there are two interesting parts to it. The first one is, how do you write a protagonist that is smarter than yourself? Many, many drafts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> theoretically, the um, the protagonist, the detective, is going to have all these skills. And this is this is one of the classic conundrums of writing is every person you write is going to be better at something than you are. Um, Remember that many of the ways that intelligence works for human beings, one of the methods is processing speed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've had several friends who are very, very good at this. One of them won Jeopardy, run $3 million on Jeopardy um, and things like this. And about them is they're smart, but they also, they have really quick recall and can process really fast. And it's a matter of the stuff that you would figure out in a couple of minutes. 
they can just snap off. This is a method of making someone more intelligent because you can accelerate that while writing. Not the only example. A great example of that, uh, fair listener, if you're one of those people who 20 minutes after the conversation that was unpleasant, you realize, oh, (laughs) this is the thing I should have said. Yep. Yeah, but when you write that conversation in your book, your brilliant main character is witty and thinks of that right off the cuff. Yeah, and you may have thought of it 20 minutes after you— Yeah, after you wrote it, you go back and put it in. Yeah, Um, Uh, One of the ways uh, that—to demonstrate this on on the page, which is what Brandon is talking about, the processing speed, um, you can make your main character smarter by— taking off some of the them figuring it out steps on the page. Right. Which will make it look like they are jumping to a conclusion. You don't want to take too many of them out because we do want to see some of their brain. But that moment, Mm -hmm. you've you've probably read this. Suddenly the answer came to him. Okay, you don't want to write that exact sentence, but that's that's one of the the ways. This is the core way that every writer of Sherlock Holmes from Arthur Conan Doyle to the contemporary ones, has shown how smart he is. As he jumps to a conclusion, everyone says, ah, you just guessed. And he says, no, clue, 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 clue. See how smart I am? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is a quick, easy scene to show the intelligence of the um, protagonist by showing their process. One, one thing that uh, Aaron Sorkin does with a lot of his characters, he kind of specializes in fast-talking, really intelligent characters is he'll add in extra mysteries that can be solved almost instantly. Mm. Mm. And so, you know, we're working on the big one, but meanwhile, I'll solve these other seven, you know, in a couple of minutes each. Yeah. And we go, oh, well, that guy's really smart. Um, The second half of Ryan's question, which I'm kind of adapting a little bit, is, so you've made your protagonist really smart, smarter than the average reader and the other characters. How do you still have it be a struggle for them to solve the mystery without losing people or, you know— Ruining the story just by having it all internal inside of the the protagonist's head. You let them make mistakes. Okay. Um, You know, this is what the red herring exists for. That your incredibly smart character puts things together in ways that make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And he puts them together quickly and you're like, yes. And then he's wrong. Right. And if what he's come up with or she's come up with, is something that you're like, oh, that was brilliant. That's kind of where I was going. And Mm. then they're wrong. The reader's like, oh, now I have no idea. Well, and having the consequences be steep for being wrong, accusing the wrong person who is a wealthy person who has the police in their pocket, and now there is, you know, the police are losing your job and whatever because you got it wrong, adds to the tension of, well, wow, you're really smart, but... uh, but you really screwed that up because you should have known better than to than to accuse mm-hmm. that person in that way. Yeah, I, I, which brings me also to uh, you. You they can be really, really really smart, but it can be difficult for them to solve something because they don't have the resources they need. Yeah, yeah. you can mm-hmm. throw other obstacles in their path. I've never been happier with one of my own mystery stories than Devil's Only Friend, where he is convinced that he has it. He has an explanation that makes sense and everything works and it answers every question except that one that's in the back of his head, and then he gets the last clue and figures it out. It's a good book. I liked it. Oh, it is a good you. book. I just don't read your books at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Jacob sounds like he's struggling with a specific question, so let's see if we can help him. How do you keep a kidnapping victim from just being a MacGuffin if they aren't recovered until the end of the story? Uh, well, if you give them a POV— Yep. 
Um, that is one way. And then you give them some agency by letting them make attempts to to rescue themselves. Yeah. Um, that's that's one way. Uh, Ray in The Force Awakens was a good example of this. She spent half the movie kidnapped. Oh, that's true. And yet she was never a damsel in distress. She was never a MacGuffin. She was always working on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's your prime way. If you're worried about this, give them a viewpoint and make them a real person rather than a MacGuffin. I can't remember the name of the movie where uh, the guy gets a call on his cell phone, the, the kidnap, the, the woman trapped in her house, and the phone's been smashed, and she puts the wires together, and she can't actually call. She has no control over the number she calls, and she connects with this guy who has to figure out where she is. I cannot for the life of me remember the movie. Very, very tense. He's running around trying to solve the mystery, figuring out where she is. And she is trying to keep the phone running, trying to keep this connection going. Huh. I can't remember that. I'm going to have to Google that and put it in the liner notes. <laughs> well, why you, you do that. Um, our last question from Stephen kind of tweaks a nerve of mine. Um, I'm glad he asked it. Uh, but I, I, it want, lets me, makes me want to get up on my soapbox, where he asks, how intellectually stimulating can you make a genre mystery? How literary or serious can it be? Um, and I think this is an important thing to remember, particularly with our discussion of elemental genres, that um, the literariness of a story is kind of like one of these, these boxes you put around the story. And let me explain that. Every story has a lens through which you are seeing the story. Um, so there's what's happening and the way you tell it. And a lot of people fallaciously assume that what you tell and how you tell it are intrinsically related, which they're not. You can tell any story in any, with any method. Now, some naturally lend themselves one way or another. So maybe there is some faint connection. Um, but, you know, I was looking at the list of most popular mysteries and the Romance of the Rose, uh, the Name of the Rose, the Romance of the Rose, um, the, the Italian um, book from... Oh, yeah. Um, from, uh, I mean, this is considered Umberto one of the greatest Echo. mysteries, yeah. Umberto Eco, which is hugely literary and considered a triumph of literary fiction. And it's a mystery. It's a straight-up mystery. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You can write a fantasy and make the lens through which you see it the most literary thing you want, or you can make that lens different. Um, so don't assume that genre means method of writing. Yeah. I, uh, you, for those of you who do not have the video feed, I was nodding vigorously all through <laughs> what Brandon said. So just, I'm not going to add anything besides that. Yes, and I was Googling, that. the movie is called Cellular, Mm. Uh, written by uh, Larry Cohen, uh, starring Kim Basinger, Chris Evans, William H. Macy, uh, Jason Statham. It was a fun, fun movie. I'm, I'm like, Chris Evans, just tell me how tight his pants are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Very tight, I would assume. I, you know, I'm— yep. I, I hate to objectify the man, but I so enjoy objectifying the man. <laughs> so, your homework. I've got your homework this time. Um, one of the things when we were discussing these episodes, we realized is mysteries are embedded so much in our stories. There are often so many of them, a surprising number. So I would like you to take a book or film that you enjoy and just jot down every mystery you can see from who drank my milk to who killed this person or how does the magic work? Whatever it is, write down every one and you'll start to see that the curiosity of solving a mystery is 
integral to almost every story that's been written. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.